0: Over the past decade, and especially in the last several years, anti-Semitic crimes have increased significantly. According to FBI statistics, hate crimes against Jews in the U.S. spiked 37% between 2016 and 2017. We are witnessing similar trends in Canada, where anti-Semitic crimes increased by 60% since last year, according to Statistics Canada. Why is it that anti-Semitism continues to thrive? Why won't this irrational hatred die? What factors contribute to the rise of anti-Semitism? Deborah Lipstadt addresses these and many other questions in her book, Antisemitism Here and Now. The number one bestseller in human rights law on Amazon, Lipstadt's book is a provocative page turner about this ancient form of hatred and prejudice. Deborah Lipstadt is Doro's Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University. I am pleased to welcome her to MBIR. Hello, Deborah, and welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So one of the most unique features of the book is its format. Rather than a traditional academic text, you formatted your book as a series of letters between yourself and two fictional people, Abigail and Joe. Why did you format the book in this way?
1: Well, I started to write the book as a normal, straightforward book. And first, I was having trouble putting my head around it. Did I want to take it country by country? Did I want to take it issue by issue? Um, And A, I couldn't quite figure out how I wanted to do it, and b. When I did do it, it was just it. It didn't. It didn't have any life to it. It didn't. It was boring. It didn't have any. As I, as I said to one interviewer in England, I said to her, "It didn't have any juice." And she said, "Juice? How can a book on anti-Semitism?" She thought I said J E W S. I was saying J U I C E. Right, right. And a friend who was reading a book then written as letters. Uh, but Tanahishi Coates said to me, who knew I was having trouble, said to me, try Letters. And of course, Letters is an established form. It's been around for ages. And I tried it and it, f- uh, it fell into place. So I was very Oh, cool.
0: wonderful. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it makes it, in my opinion, re- really readable.
1: Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted this book. Look, it's a scholarly book. I think it's got 30 pages of footnotes or something like that um so it's clearly referenced and cited and all those kind of things but i wanted the book to be a hybrid clearly source referenced so that scholars could depend on what i was saying or check out what i was saying but i also wanted it to be a book that would be read by non scholars i wanted it to be a book that would reach a broader public um, and, uh, the letters format seems to have done that because I'm hearing this from a lot of people. Wonderful. In fact, in fact, uh, I don't know, a couple, a week or two after it was published, one day I received two ma- emails in quick succession. One from a friend who was on a plane, um, flying home from Paris where she'd been for business. She was reading the book. And she said, I want to buy this book for my two uh, children, one a junior in high school, one a senior in high school, because I think these are some of the issues that they will um, uh, face when they get to university. And I was very pleased by that. They're smart kids, so they can certainly read a book. uh, You know, they read uh, adult, adult level books all the time. The next uh, email came from a professor of Jewish studies, a professor of biblical biblical studies, excuse me, biblical studies, at a very prestigious university in the United States. He's in biblical studies, but he's you know because he sort of moves around the edge of Jewish studies, he he confronts the issue of anti-Semitism. He reads articles on anti-Semitism. Does anti-Semitism go back to biblical times, et cetera, et cetera? And he said, I love the book. It really cleared up a lot of things for me and helped me think about things in different ways. And then I received about a day or two later uh, an email from another colleague who happens to be Armenian, who congratulated me on the book and said uh, he really loved it. It helped him understand anti-Semitism, which he thinks a lot about uh, a lot about a lot because of the Armenian genocide, etc. But it helped him think about the issues of prejudice and hatred in a new way. So at that point, I said I was ready to, you know, hang up my coat, take off my shoes and say, I'm done. You know, it was, it was very gratifying. It was very, very
0: gratifying. Right. Um, so I have a question for you about terminology. Um, academics are acutely aware of the limitations of definitions and are often reticent to define terms. But in order to recognize antisemitism, we must have a some sort of common understanding of what antisemitism is. So, can you explain, as you aptly do in your book, what is antisemitism, and is there a definition of antisemitism that you find particularly useful?
1: Okay. Well, I think there are a number of definitions of antisemitism, um, but I would argue that let me start. From the end, sort of, and go backwards. Um, that if you were looking, if you look at any prejudice, you're studying any prejudice, whether it's a home about uh, gender, whether it's about sexual preference, whether it's about race, there's uh, and particular races. There's always a, uh, a set, maybe one, maybe two, maybe more uh, of stereotypes associated with that prejudice. And if you move the stereotype from one group to the other, it doesn't work. You know, shiftless and lazy doesn't work for Jews. Um, Money grubbing doesn't work for uh, African-Americans. Those um, in terms of the stereotype, I want to be very clear. I'm talking here about the stereotypes. So the template of the stereotype for anti-Semitism, I would say, includes uh, three, maybe four elements. One, money, something to do with finances, something to do with intellect, with smarts, but in a conniving way, and something to do with power. And you put the three together, that they all are used by Jews, the anti-Semite would say, in this conniving, malicious, nefarious way uh, against others. Um, So what I'm saying is that anti-Semitism has a structure. It is persistent we could trace it back you know to middle early middle ages if not earlier than that um and yet it morphs it adapts so um i would argue that that that's my loosely held definition
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that. And in the book, you examine several different manifestations of anti-Semitism. You, of course, talk about extremists um, who are perhaps the easiest to recognize and the most obvious. But you also talk about anti-Semitic enablers, um, the dinner party anti-Semite and the clueless anti-Semite, to name a few examples. Can you explain the differences between these varying manifestations of anti-Semitism? And would you say that there's a sort of category of anti Semitism that is more dangerous than others?
1: Um I would say um it's an interesting it's an interesting question. Um I would say this. I would say that um the the oh, let me first deal with each one the extremist anti-semite is the one we all recognize it's the hitlerian model you know it's the one um marching down the street or across a college campus as we saw in the united states a couple of years ago um, you know with a tiki torch or with arms outstretched chanting jews will not replace us it's the one that it's easiest to condemn and easiest to say, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. It's like the guy who went into the synagogue um, in Pittsburgh. I know his name, but following the model of the prime minister of New Zealand and their recent tragedy in the mosque, I'm not going to mention his name. Um, uh, that, That extremist is easy to condemn and easy to recognize. But There are other types, and I think we do ourselves harm by not recognizing that. So in the book, I talk about um, the dinner party anti-Semite. The dinner party anti-Semite is the person who might never think of doing any physical harm to a Jew, a Jewish institution, but who will sit at dinner and say, well, we hired a new associate at our law firm, or we hired a new doctor at the hospital um he's a jew but he's very honest he's a jew mm-hmm. but uh, uh he's a, we can trust him something like that um, In fact, it happened to me, it happened to me in a backwards way. Um, it happened to me when at my first job, I was at the University of Washington in Seattle, a very fine university, I was at the history department teaching modern Jewish history. And I was the first person to ever be hired at the university with, you know, to teach uh, with in a field with Jewish appended to it. Obviously, there were Jewish topics that were taught. If you were teaching contemporary American, 20th century American literature, you were teaching Jewish, American Jewish novelists, you know, Bellow, Malamud, post-war, post-war American literature, Roth. Um, But this was an official position in Jewish history. And um, things worked out beautifully. I loved it. My classes were full. The students were excited. Uh, I was doing good work. And one day towards the end of my first year there, a colleague took me out for coffee and he said, Debra, I have to tell you something. When I first heard that you were coming here, a New York woman, a Jew, I was really worried about what we were going to get. And then you came And you are terrific. You're one of the best things, you're one of the best hires this department has ever made. Um, I am so delighted that you're here. Um, So, you know, uh, that was, uh, 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 there's a journalist in in DC, Frank Foyer, who describes a philo-Semite as an anti-Semite who likes Jews. And that was, That was that form. So that's sort of the dinner party anti-Semite. Then you have what I call the anti-Semitic enabler, the person who may himself or herself not be an anti-Semite, but their words, their rhetoric, what they have to say enables, enhances, emboldens anti-Semites. and the anti-Semites think they're anti-Semites. So in that group, I include two people from polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. Jeremy Corbyn of the uh, British Labor Party and Donald Trump, President of the United States. Um, I have no idea if either of these men are anti-Semites. Um, I'm more sure about one than the other, but that's beside the point. Cause that doesn't matter. No, it does, it's irrelevant. If we get into an argument, is he an anti-Semite or is he, is this one an anti-Semite, that one an anti-Semite, there's no end to the matter. You'll never resolve it. And, and you don't know that's between them and their cardiologist. It's between them, and the, <laughs> them. And if they believe in a higher being, a higher being It's between them and their conscience, conscience. The question is, as political leaders with power to influence, have they enabled in, and emboldened um, anti-Semites? And I think in the case of both of them, they have um, with their rhetoric. And uh, if, you know, if they didn't, um, if, if they were really opposed to it, they would, they would tell their followers who engage in it, no, I don't believe in it. You know, Jeremy Corbyn has embraced anti Semites, embraced deniers, uh, refused Jews the right to define anti Semitism, to identify anti Semitism, told Jews that when they speak of anti Semitism, they don't know what they're talking about, et cetera. And Donald Trump, you know, going back to his statement at Charlottesville, you know, nice people on both sides. Um, his discussion of, you know, hordes of refugees, immigrants. And you might say, well, what do refugees and immigrants have to do with anti-Semitism? But that's all part, as we saw in the recent tragedy, tremendous tragedy in New Zealand at at the mosque, at the two mosques, um, that's part of the nexus of white supremacy. Um, And by the way, I don't like the word white nationalism. I, I prefer the word white supremacy, but I think they're both the same. Um, you know, white nationalism sort of tries to give it a semi-respectable gloss. But um, the white supremacist is very much taken by what they, what they call replacement theory. Um, if your listeners want to go on a white nationalist website, white supremacist, there I go, white supremacist website, um, they'll see that. Uh, And what is replacement theory? Replacement theory argues that the white culture, whatever that is, the white European culture, whatever that is, the white male, whomever that is, um, is being, quote unquote, replaced by others with other cultures, with other ethnicities, with other skin colors, with other religions other than Christianity and that this is a concerted effort to push whites out of their place of primacy and push white culture out of its its well-deserved place of primacy, so argues the um, white supremacist. Now, who is doing this replacing? What white supremacists would argue, the person of color, uh, whether black or brown or whatever, is not smart enough, is not capable enough to do this. Someone must be engineering this. Someone must be making this happen. Aha, we know who is behind the scenes. We know who acts in a devilish fashion. We know who knows how to control things without being seen. Who is that? The Jew. And that's why when they talk about the Rothschilds or they talk about George Soros, who are they? They're the the behind-the-scenes power that are controlling these things. So that's another form of the anti-Semite. And the fourth form I address is what I call the clueless anti-Semite. The person who works with a Jew, has worked with a Jew for years, and without blinking an eyelash, without thinking, will say, oh, I got a great price on a new car. I Jewed him down. You know, and if you say to them, "You did what?" and they say, "Drew them down," and you say, "You know, that's not only offensive, but that's anti-Semitic." They will look at you and they will say, "Huh?" And 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 when you explain it to them or you call them on it, very often they will they will recognize it. So uh, sometimes it's done in a clueless fashion, and sometimes I think it's done in uh, obviously far from a clueless fashion.
0: Right, right. Um, and would you say that? It's difficult to sort of qualify, I guess, and maybe there isn't a point of this. But would you say that there is one type of anti semite or anti semitic rhetoric that's more dangerous than the other, or are they all equally dangerous in their own different ways?
1: They're all equal dangerous in this in the in the in different ways. They all tend to use this. They use the template. The template is used in one way or another. Here's what I would say: the extremist is no more dangerous. Than the dinner party or the enabler, and of course these aren't you know the edges of these different categories bleed one into other into the other. They're not silos, so it's very easy to move from one to the other. But without the rhetoric of the enabler, without the rhetoric of the dinner party, anti semite, um, the extremist doesn't do what he what he or she
0: does. Right, right. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, and as you addressed with copious examples in your book, um, anti-Semitic attacks have increased exponentially in the last decade or two decades or so. What factors contribute to this rise in anti-Semitism?
1: You know, first of all, I want to say that the there may be the same number of anti-Semites around, but some of them have just to borrow a phrase from another form of prejudice, come out of the closet. You know. Um, so I don't want to get into whether they're more or they're fewer, but we're certainly, as you said in, in your question, we see it more, it's out there more. I think there are a number of factors. Uh, first of all, I treat antisemitism as a, or I think of it as a virus, a herpes virus. I know that the the comparison is pretty disgusting, but herpes is the kind of thing that if it got into your body, I think now they have medication to deal with it, but up until recently, if it got into your body, Um, It was virtually impossible to get it out. Uh, We've all heard the horror story of the person going for a big interview and he wakes up that morning and he's got a herpes sore on his lip or something, or the bride who gets a herpes outbreak right before her wedding. They're under tension, they're under pressure, and it comes out. I think anti-Semitism is something like that, in part because of its, not because of anything Jews do, but because of its longevity and its legs and it's, the way it is so deeply embedded in society. Um, now, by the way, when I say not because of the Jews who do bad things, but they're individuals. If a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant does something, we don't say we hate all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So you have to always be careful of moving from the individual to the group. Uh, going back um, going back to this, uh, um, I would say there are other reasons as well. So you have this, this virus there that's always ready to, to emerge. Um, Anti-Semitism is also going back a little bit to answering your question and back to one of your earlier questions in terms of uh, categorization and definition. Anti-Semitism, in addition to being a virus, is a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories seek to make sense of inex- of inexplicable situations. You know, why is it raining so much on the, the very week when I have want to have my outdoor dinner, outdoor picnics and outdoor events? The gods are against me. And we all laugh that at, off. But if you say, why did my business go belly up? Well, those Jews started stores down the block, not a Jew, but the Jews. Um, that's a conspiracy theory. You know, if you, if, you, if you blame it on one group to sort of make, it, make what's happening to you understandable. So it's irrational. Um, therefore, seeking any explanation to, to why now is sort of to give a rational explanation to an irrational event. But having said that, I'll give explanation. <laughs> you know? um, uh, so we have it as a virus. We have it as a conspiracy theory now. We also have a time of great political and economic upheaval, a growing populism, uh, a growing nationalism. And by the way, when I say nationalism, I am not meaning to suggest um, uh, that I'm against patriotism. I'm a patriotic American. Uh, This country has been wonderful to generations of my family. My family has contributed a great deal to this country as well. So I think there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. But when you become nationalist, my country above all others, my country right or wrong, my country, if you succeed, it is at the um, uh, cost to my country, you know, a zero sum game there can only be one winner, that kind of thing. Um, and there's a, a growing, this growing populism also tends to demonize other groups. It builds one group up, your group up, the majority group up uh by by finding scapegoats in other groups. And we see that today. We see that today in the anti-Semitism, in the fear of Muslims, we see that in some of the racism. We certainly see it on a national level, it, let's take Europe in um, Hungary today, in Poland, so though the current government in Poland seems to be under a little bit of uh electoral assault, but who knows? Um, but certainly in Hungary, in Austria, in the Alternative for Deutschland, the AFD party, um, in Germany, uh, in certain elements in Italy. Um, now, whether this is being stoked by outside forces, by interference from other countries, I don't know, but it is, it is given expression. It is on the rise. And that, that also often plays into uh, uh, an anti-Semitism. So I think that's part of it, too. That would be more on the political right. Um, on the political left, we see it um, very much tied up with, um, with Israel, with opposition to Israeli policies, with opposition to Israel's existence. There's, Let me say something straight out as we sort of, I don't know if you were planning to ask about this, but as sort of we segue into the topic of Israel. There's nothing anti-Semitic about criticizing Israeli policies, um, absolutely nothing at all. Um, but, the, um, but what we often have is um, a singular focus on human rights uh, failings, human rights abuses by Israel to the exclusion of all other countries. Um, whether it's in terms of human rights, whether it's women's rights, which of course are human rights, whether it's in terms of rights of LGBTQ people, which of course also are a subset of human rights. Um, So this singular myopic focus, and also when you're looking at the issue of the Arab-Israeli or or Israeli-Palestinian conflict and dispute, to see all the wrongs on one side. Um, and to, to only see one side as uh, um, responsible for the wrongs, and that too um, is is problematic uh, the The wonders of computers, it allows us to talk, but it also comes sometimes comes with its own challenge. Certainly in any case, in any case. Um, so and I think that there are those on the left, the progressive left. And again, we see this in Corbyn's uh, Labour Party or the group around Jeremy Corbyn, but not only there, who often uh, intertwine their um, uh, opposition or their, their standing on this, po- uh, this policy, Israel's policies, or their standing on Israel's existence, um, uh, coat their uh, criticisms in an, or, or place their criticisms, structure their criticisms in an anti-Semitic format. Um, and that, that, that also adds to the rise. So it's, it's a bunch of things. It's coming from the right. It's coming from the left. It comes from Islamist. Uh, unlike this country where most of the, um, uh, attacks have come from white, from white supremacists and white, um, uh uh you know uh, white nationalist word again I, I I prefer white supremacists um in Europe most of the attacks have come from Islamist extremists
0: can you since we're talking about Israel can you elaborate on the connection between anti-semitism and the and the state of Israel and why conversations about you know the issues with um some Israeli politics and policies sort of stokes anti-semitism what what's going on here can you unpack this for us yeah it's it's such a it's such on one hand it's
1: so simple and on the other hand it is so complicated and so many people you know feel like if i'm going to tread on it it's a minefield that's going to explode in my face but it, it shouldn't be as i said earlier um criticism of israeli policies is not anti-semitic i would hope look i criticize american policies if someone doesn't call me i hope no one calls me anti-american because i criticize american policies you know canadians criticize et cetera et cetera it's no no need to belabor that um but it's uh well i'll give you an example we had a incident here in the united states in the month of february beginning of March with a newly elected member of the House of Representatives, Representative Omar from Minnesota, who is uh, Somali born and came to this country uh, as a, a refugee and it's now elected to the House, not the first refugee to be elected to the House, but certainly it is, it is quite a remarkable uh, development. Um. And she, first of all, she had tweeted back way back about uh, I don't know six years ago about how Israel hypnotized the rest of the world into supporting it, and that is part of that anti-Semitic template. You know that what I talked about that working behind the scenes, you can't quite identify who is doing what, you can't quite put your finger on them. They're they're mystical, they're they're demons, and and that hypnotizing. And she apologized for that. But then more recently, um, when, some, when she was talking about support of Israel, she tweeted, it's all about the Benjamin's baby. Now, first of all, a very flippant way, but she wasn't talking about Israeli policies there. She was, talking to, she was accusing supporters of Israel of buying off um, uh, 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 politicians with their money to get support for Israel. That that was the only reason there wasn't an affinity in terms of heritage, there wasn't an affinity in terms of politics, there wasn't an affinity in terms of democracy, uh, there wasn't an affinity in terms of history, et cetera, et cetera. It was only about surreptitious, under the table, Benjamin's baby, you know. And then um, later, she, in a speech, she openly accused uh, supporters of Israel uh, of dual loyalty. And the dual loyalty, whether made against Muslims, made against Jews, made against anyone, is a very tricky thing. But it's especially so against Jews because it's part of that anti-Semitic template, that Jews are more loyal to one another than they are to their country. Uh, that they're going to support a Jew in, I don't know, in, in in Uzbekistan faster than they're going to support an American or a Canadian or whatever it is living next to them. Um, that their only concern are Jews and, and no one else. That their only concern are Jews and, and no one else. And that is part of the anti-Semitic template. Jews were accused of being cosmopolitans. What is cosmopolitan? Not in the way that always oh, very cosmopolitan, sophisticated, etc. cetera, worldly, but that they they weren't nationals. They were uh, committed one to the other and not to that, the, not to the country. And that she was So she was in her criticism, in her comments. She was. Um, Really taking a hit, not at Israeli policies, but at the loyalty of Americans, at the loyalty of uh, American Jews, at the loyalty of other, many other Americans who support Israel. So there, you see the anti-Semitic uh, template being used, supposedly to criticize Israeli policies, but of course it had nothing to do with Israeli policies, and that's why it upset so many people.
0: Right, right, um, and. Also related to the state of Israel, um, the BDS movement is, well, and you discuss this a lot in your book, is a major issue on on many college campuses in, in the United States. So can you maybe talk about how, while well, the boycott, divestment and sanction movement has impacted discourse about the state of Israel and, again, sort of seems to stoke anti-Semitism and how that affects students on college campuses?
1: Right, right. I, I think it's sort of ironic. You and I couldn't have, a mean, have this conversation if we were adhering to BDS. Most, most college students would whip out their uh smartphone and it would be dead if they were adhering to BDS you know so um it's 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 a ridiculous kind of thing it's it's not going to happen and in fact i would argue that if you uh listen to the founders of the BDS movement What you'll find is that their objective is not really to engage in a boycott of Israel. Their objective is to toxify Israel, to make Israel toxic. Now, um, I believe there are supporters of BDS on college campuses. I meet them all the time who are not out to toxify Israel and not out for the destruction of Israel and are not anti-Semites at all. They just see this as a way of possibly changing Israeli policies, a way of impacting Israeli policies. However, if you look at the founding documents of the BDS movement, if you look at the statements made by the founders of the BDS movement, clearly what their intention is the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, and, you The the destruction of the state of Israel I find overtly anti Semitic. Um, Maybe you could have had a debate about the wisdom of the existence of a state of Israel. Uh, You know, you had the debate in the 30s. Jews were debating it mightily in the 20s and the 30s, even in the 40s. But once you had a state, and today you have a state with six, seven million Jews living in that state to argue that, oh, I'm, I'm all I'm interested in is, um, you know, a one state solution or to end the state of Israel, or as a famous journalist, Helen Thomas, now deceased said in the United States, uh, um, oh, they should all go back to Poland. (laughs) You know? Well, the fact is that over 52% of the Jews in Israel uh, come from Africa, Iran, Iraq, North Africa, you know, uh, Yemen, um, etc., etc. In other words, they they would be considered in the uh, racial way of looking at the world, quote unquote, people of color. Uh, They're certainly not Eastern European Poles um, or or any other part of Europe. so uh, BDS, so some of, the, some of the people who support it see it just as a way of changing policy. But I think if you go to the heart of the matter, it's, it's an argument for the, for the toxification and, and the end of the state of Israel. And that's why um, I don't support it. I also don't support boycotts in general. Boycotts are anti I teach in a university. Universities are built on open exchange of ideas. Universities are built on learning, learning about what others say. You know, I, I recently, I, a couple of years ago, Salman Rushdie, who was here at, at, in residence at Emory University where I teach, uh, described the American college campus as a um, insult-free, becoming an insult-free zone. And I think if he were saying it today, he would say it has become an insult-free zone, where you have the best universities. I mentioned some of them in the book: Wellesley, a group of professors, uh, students, and professors in different contexts. Put themselves forward, as saying, you know, yes, there's a First Amendment, but we—the greater right—is not to be hurt. We shouldn't hear things that are hurtful. Or a group of professors who put themselves forward: we will vet what can be said and what can be sa- can't be said. Well, to my mind, that's McCarthyism of the left, you know. And um, so you don't boycott; you engage in argument, you engage in exchange. But you know, and there are some universities which have said to Israeli excuse me, professors, well, we'll let you come if you acknowledge before you come that you don't agree with the policies of your country. Well, that's a loyalty oath. And those are the the exact kind of things that in earlier generations, in the 50s and early 60s, we were fighting against because you know you had to take a loyalty to the oath that you weren't a communist, you'd never been a communist, et cetera, et cetera, and we said no, that's the uni- not me we, but I'm speaking figuratively I'm not that old <laughs> um, we, we 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 said no that that's that's exactly what the university is not supposed to be, so now it's turned around because it's coming from the left it's okay,
0: so why is there this pressure on Israeli scholars for example, to denounce is like Israeli politics. Like what? Yes. What? What is mm-hmm. that? Where is that coming from?
1: It's coming from the left. It's coming from the people who oppose Israel or Israeli policies or the existence of Israel. I can't speak for them, um, but it's uh, it's it's certainly if they if they were being consistent with their so-called liberal values, they wouldn't be demanding it. Um, and and I think it's wrong. Why should why should a professor of medieval uh, church mosaics, as uh, uncovered in archaeological sites in 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 Israel, have to say, and I disagree with Benjamin Netanyahu. I disagree with Israeli policies, etc. Before they can give a um a, uh, a lecture on the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem,
0: you know, it doesn't make any sense.
1: But that's but that's the inconsistency. And that's coming from the left.
0: Um, I'm going to shift our conversation a little bit um, to Holocaust deniers. You talk about um, sort of this phenomenon in in the book. Um, First of all, what is Holocaust denial and how do some Holocaust deniers disguise anti-Semitism, racism and prejudice as rational discourse, as you say?
1: Well, Holocaust denial, first and foremost, is, an, is a. Let me let me deal with the second half of your question before I get into the to the weeds of what constitutes Holocaust denial. Um, Holocaust denial is a form of anti-Semitism, nothing more, nothing less. It's not an edgy view of history. Um, think about it. I, I gave a TED talk on this once, and some of your listeners might be interested in it. But in the talk, I say, think about it. T- For deniers to be right, who would have to be wrong? Well, first, all the survivors who tell their story uh, and whose stories buttress one another, you know? Um, but, But setting that aside, certainly all the bystanders, The people in the Polish cities and towns and villages near the death camp who who watched the trains going in day after day, coming out empty, who knew what was going on in there. I'm not saying that there was very much they could have done at that point, but, but they knew what was going on there. All the thousands of historians, American historians, Canadian historians, European throughout every corner of Europe, Japan, I was in Japan recently and I I met historians dealing with this, Israeli historians would either have to be part of the hoax or have been duped into uh, accepting this hoax. Hopes. And fourth, and most importantly, the perpetrators, the perpetrators, including those who were, let's say, on trial or something. No one ever said it didn't happen. What they said was, um, I didn't do it or I had no choice. Germany itself you know, says, we did it. Uh, Deniers will say to you, oh, the reason they do that is because if they didn't, they weren't going to be admitted back into the family of nations. The Jews told them you have to admit to this terrible crime. And again, it's that delusional conspiratorial theory of the power of the Jew. Um, So Holocaust denial makes no sense. The Holocaust has the dubious distinction of being the best documented genocide in the world. Um, So if you were to ask a denier, Why did the Jews make up this story? Why did they go to so much effort to create this myth and build museums and memorials and et cetera, and have people parade as survivors and get historians to write thousands of books on the topic, et cetera? They would say, a denier would say, well, what did the Jews, quote unquote, get out of the Holocaust? And the answer often given is uh, Israel, which historically is not entirely correct, because the British were looking to create some sort of political entity in Israel long before, well before the Holocaust. But anyway, that's the perception. Israel. And what else did they get? They got reparations from Germany. What's reparations? A fancy word for money. So there you have the anti-Semitic template. You know, you, you tell someone who has someone who, who was engaged in Western culture, has been exposed to anti-Semitism, uh, just like someone engaged in Western culture is exposed to racism. It's almost impossible. It's impossible to avoid. Um Uh, And you give them a rational explanation based on these anti-Semitic stereotypes that I talked about earlier in our conversation. So Holocaust denial is a form of anti-Semitism. It's completely irrational. There is no evidence. There is no narrative. There are no witnesses. There are no documents. Uh, Because if you look closely at the documents, I was on trial. I was sued for libel by a Holocaust denier. I was on trial. Uh, The trial itself took uh, 10 weeks. And, uh, you know, preparation for it took a very long time, and we showed that every one of their claims um, is based on either a uh, a made-up document, a misread of the document, the change of the document, only half the document, that it's fallacious. The judge found strongly for us, in fact, that your listeners, if they want to explore this further, can see the transcripts and the judgment um, at a site called HDOT, H-D-O-T, which is an Emory University website. So Holocaust denial is a form of anti-Semitism. That doesn't mean that there's an orthodoxy about the Holocaust, that everyone has to agree it happened exactly as one way or the other. Because if you read different historians, one argues that it was something that only the Germans could have perpetrated, and others argue no anti-Semitism was so virulent in Europe that it could have come from many countries. Uh, you know, and, and and people have many different uh, views on things that otherwise you wouldn't have this this large library of books with with, hol- with historians debating one another. Was Hitler's motivation primarily anti-Semitism? Was it to uh, capture Eastern territories and have an unending supply of food for Germans and, and slave labor for Germans? Is it different? There are different explanation and different debates. Uh, did it, was it Hitler's idea first? Did it start with Hitler? Did it start with people beneath him? Did it start with both working towards the middle? Um, so we have many, many debates about this. But there is no debate that millions of Jews, and there's even debate how many, was it uh, 5.2, was it six? Now there are many historians who are beginning to believe it's more than six because we're discovering um, burial sites of um, uh, places we didn't know with a 1,000 Jews here, 500 Jews here in Belarus and the Ukraine and other places. Um, so there, there's room to debate and there has to be debate, but to say that it didn't happen, to say that it was all made up to say, cause where did these Jews go? We know they existed. I mean, there, there are censuses that show they existed. Yes, there uh, deniers will show you a census that doesn't, but it's, it's, it's based on quasi information. There, there, there's no question that millions of Jews disappeared. They used to say, oh, they're behind the Soviet union and they can't come out but when the soviet union ended in the in the late 80s early 90s they didn't all appear so there is no narrative there is no evidence it's a, it's a complete completely ridiculous kind of thing and uh, you have to ask why does it get any traction it's attractive to uh, anti-semites to white supremacists, et cetera.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. And um, that TED Talk that you referenced was, I actually watched it recently. And for folks who want to hear more about this, they should absolutely watch it. Um, we don't have enough time to go through all that, all the sort of, all the things you mentioned in that TED Talk, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. And there was also a movie that was made based on your, right. on your experience in court, oh, yes, right? there was. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it was a very good movie with a screenplay by David Hare, uh, starring Rachel Weiss which isn't a bad person to have to portray your life. <laughs> True. Um, and uh, it also, it look, if I had made the movie, it would have been four hours long, but for an hour and 50 minutes, I think it does a really good job of, of explaining what the issue is all about. It's a very fine movie with a very, very good
0: screenplay. Um, well, we're approaching the end of our time. I have a couple more questions. My second to last sure. question for you is, what is the best way to combat anti semitism, racism, and hate?
1: Oh, now you get to the hard (laughs) stuff. Just as as we're ending. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm glad you waited till now, because to be very honest, and one might think otherwise, uh, I don't have an easy answer for that. Um, And um, it would be, you know, you would think someone had just spent uh, two and a half, three years writing a book that you would have an answer. One, do this, do that it's an, it's the oldest hatred. It's the longest hatred. It's old wine and new bottles. Um, but I think there are certain things we can do. And by the way, they, they pertain not just to anti-Semitism pre- prejudice in general. A, we can become the unwelcome, we have not be, we can, we have to be the unwelcome guest at the dinner party. Um, the, the person who won't be silent when an uh, uh, anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic, uh, whatever comment is made, who doesn't sit silently by because they don't want to upset things. We can't afford to do that. Doesn't mean you have to ram the soup down the person's neck, you know, down their throat, um, but you have to say, I don't accept that. We don't talk that way. We, we have to say it not to change the haters' point of view, because most of the time you can't change their point of view, but for the people at the table, especially the young people, that not only don't we believe this, but we don't speak that way. It's two different things, they, because the kids may know you don't think that way. But they got to know that that kind of talk isn't acceptable. There was recently an incident, uh, I think in early March of 2019, um, in a D.C. public school, a public school that happened to have mainly um, uh, uh, Caucasian students, very, very few uh, uh, students of color. But there were some and there were kids playing, I think, football um, at at uh, recess time and one a caucasian child was playing with a couple of other uh children of color and at one point he used the n word on them and the the game stopped or whatever and he said i don't care you can call me a racist but i don't care doesn't matter I, i'm you know i i don't care if you call me a racist well that kind of talk doesn't this is a fifth grader so that would make them what uh 11 12 something like that um uh that kind of talk doesn't come ex nihilo he heard that somewhere he he heard that at home he heard that from a parent um that's that's uh that's pretty powerful kind of talk um so we have to telegraph that that kind of talk is unacceptable maybe that that kid is salvageable not through his family but through people around him so becoming unwelcome guests at the dinner party a b recognizing that anti-Semitism uh, comes, uh, or uh, let me start that over, B, not just seeing anti-Semitism or prejudice in general, but certainly in this case, anti-Semitism on the other side of the political transom. In other words, if you're on the left and you only see it on the right, or you're on the right and you only see it on the left, then you're blind to what's going on next to you. And and you're... you're Claims are invalid um, because if you only see it on the other side, then I have to think that you don't really um, uh, you aren't really concerned about anti semitism. You're more concerned about making political points. So I think that would be uh, another uh, factor. And I think yeah, the third or another thing to to do to to recognize. And I think a third thing to recognize is that. Uh, In fighting this scourge of prejudice in general, and here we're talking about anti-Semitism specifically, not to see ourselves as doing it um, for the Jews, or if you're a Jew, for my own group, or if you have Jewish relatives, for my Jewish relatives, or my Jewish neighbors, or my Jewish colleagues, I told them, you know, because I didn't want you to be hurt. That's a good reason, but it's not a sufficient reason. Nor should we be doing it um, solely because, well, I hate prejudice of all kinds, so anybody who engages in prejudice, i'm going to tell them it's wrong. That's a good reason, but it's not a sufficient reason. The reason we should be so concerned and outraged and and anxious to 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 fight as much as possible against this scourge is that no democratic society can tolerate having this hateful conspiracy theory in its midst and continue to be a healthy democratic society. Um, if, if you believe in this conspiracy theory, you'll believe in any conspiracy theory about the economy, about politics, about uh, the weather, I don't know, whatever it might be, it's an unhealthy uh, element to have in your society it's it's the degradation of democracy it's 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 the rot from which uh, the death of democracy follows. Um, and I feel that very strongly
0: well we're we're approaching the end of our time. Um thank you so much for this interview and it's been it's been extremely enlightening and an and an important discussion to have and our viewers will certainly appreciate it. Um so thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. You're welcome and thank you for uh for having me and
1: thank you for your for for your close read of the book and uh, uh let me even, I even I don't usually show my own books I've written many books and they sell well <laughs> enough without my having to show them but but I really hope people uh read this book and think about the issues uh contained therein uh most of my books have had to have dealt with history with what was or with how people distort history this is the first time I've ever written about something that is present that is happening right now and um, I think it's, it's, it's terribly important that we address it and, and for people not to say, well, I'm not Jewish, my friends aren't Jewish, I don't really know many Jews, I'm not an anti-Semite, so it's not my business. It is everybody's business because, as I, just, as I said earlier, um, it's so, so relevant to, uh, wiping it out is so crucial to having a healthy democratic society
0: absolutely said beautifully um well thank you again and the book anti-semitism here and now is out now and it's a fantastic read and i absolutely recommend it to all of our viewers it's really and it's quite poignant for our time of course as you've um as you've said thanks again deborah and take care you're welcome thank you for having me